Hey everyone, greetings from Sue and Emil. We're here today with Matthew Hodgson from Matrix, the founder of the of the Matrix project, and we're very excited to have him for our, um, you know, this new experiment that we're doing with podcasting to the GT crowds. Uh, we're very honored to have Matthew as our as our first guest as a first guest here. We are hoping to have some um, pretty nice discussions today. Uh, we'll see where the conversation takes us. Um, Matthew, welcome. Very happy to have you here. Yeah, awesome. Thank sure. you so much, guys, for having me on. Really looking forward to catching up and conversations with both of you are always really fun. And it's been quite a while since we've had the opportunity. So I think that kind of capturing one of these on the fly as a podcast is a brilliant idea. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. And uh, definitely we're very excited about that as well. So um, let's start with a little bit of a, uh, of a history on your on your thinking, um, can you tell us a little bit how and why you launched into the Matrix effort? Why does Matrix exist? And why have you been wasting seven years and counting on building this great white tower? Okay, so Matrix began in 2014, but to understand why we created a new communication protocol for secure decentralized communication, um, it's probably worthwhile understanding what we were doing before because since 2003 also, so getting on for 20 years, we were doing um, SIP. That, that's so, funny, because we started 2003 as well. So, and it, it also, there was a lot of wandering in the desert on our side as well. Yeah, no, honestly, we feel like we've been kind of fellow travelers on slightly different paths. I still. hadn't discovered SIP yet, so I think I discovered it a couple of years later. Well, it's probably no bad thing. In fact, we actually technically started off on IAX, um, the old asterisk, um, interchange protocol before we abandoned IX because oh, it, the multiplets are signaling and the media are on the same stream. And who's and, who's we at that point? Because you were uh, with uh, with another company, with another team at that point. Yeah, so I ran the um, VoIP function for this little company in West London called MX Telecom. And for many years, we were building, first of all, a SIP soft switch um, using the Reciprocate C++ um, stack, which was a horizontally scalable carrier grade soft switch. And it had gateways through to H323 and to PSTN, um, E1 cards. Um, what else do we have? H324 round, so circuit switch video calling um, for interactive two-way video on 3G UMTS phones back before the crazy smartphones we have today. Oh my God. I how how old were you this. back then? Me, uh, I guess this was straight out of university. So in 2003, had it been like 23 or something. Right. So um, we were doing that for about 10 years and it was a lot of fun because we learned all about SIP. We also built our own media stacks, our own RTP, SRTP, ICE, Stun, Turn. Basically ended up with something that felt a lot like WebRTC before WebRTC existed. And then when the smartphones came along, we ported our server-side stack and ran it client side. So this probably is something very familiar in terms of the stack that, um, of course, on the Jitsi side, pre-Jitsi mate, um, the sort of communicator app um, was doing, and we ended up with a very, very similar product. Admittedly, it was C++ rather than Java, but um, uh, we ended up running it both on iOS um, using uh, like native C++ link from the Objective-C. We put it in JNI on Android and then also on the desktop. We had it running as Win32 binaries. And we also had a really weird thing where we did the front end in Macromedia Flash and then talked over a local TCP socket to a Windows daemon so that you could embed a soft nice. phone in a web browser. 
So what I'm what I'm taking out of this experience is that uh, from your from your early days, uh, one of your missions was to be able to to talk to a bunch of different things, to interconnect a bunch of different things. Yep, it was literally just um, uh, trying to build. At this point, not open source by the way. This was all proprietary um, server or SaaS cloud hosted um, uh, infrastructure that we would provide, and we called it TNG, Next Generation Telephony nothing to do with Star Trek, the next generation at all. Um, and TNG was literally uh, meant to be a Twilio-style product where you could go and route calls or messages from A to B, and it would have functionality like billing, transcoding, archiving, um, and basic IVR services. And it also yeah. could hook up to a full IVR layer on top for whatever it's interactive. And at some point in that transitioned as part of Amdocs, was that an acquisition or? Yeah, so the company got bought by Amdocs, the big Israeli telecom supplier in 2010. Um, so I guess we've been at it seven years or so at that point. Rather amusingly, they bought the company for its SMS connectivity. And that was mm -hmm. the main thing that the company as a whole was doing. I was kind of off on the side with this little rogue band of VoIP hackers going and doing all the SIP and um, subsequently XMPP um, stuff as well. And Amdocs didn't really know what to do with us because they kind of accidentally bought a VoIP dev team, uh, which they kind of got for so free. So your team was not at all responsible for SMS. You weren't doing that at all. Uh, no. You were just sitting there on the sidelines and you were trying to find yourself a new um, compatibility with the new with the new yeah. employer. We were meant to be um, well, we were meant to be, be building the thing to replace SMS, frankly, um, both business wise and technology wise. And uh, after a little time rattling around inside Amdocs trying to find compatibility, as you say, um, we got lucky and Amdocs realized that if they mixed together my VoIP team with the mobile development team that they had also acquired a month later, a company called Stromezzo in France, which was a spin-off from France Telecom, based up in Rennes in Brittany, that if they combined those guys with my guys, then you could start building smartphone apps with a VoIP stack in it, as well as messaging and address book and um, merged address book, all of these kind of features, and start competing with Skype or WhatsApp or that sort of it thing. It was all the rage back then, right? Competing with Skype. Uh, every, everyone was, that was kind of the gold standard of, uh, or rather, I think, what, what people perceived is, oh, yeah, I guess that's how telecommunication has to look now. Look at how successful Skype is. Let's try and do the same thing. Yep, precisely. Um, and this was 2011, after all. So yeah, you no know, WhatsApp barely well it was just starting to come uh, on the scene at that point. But and, and you could still... argue actually that WhatsApp was pretty similar to Skype in its um, in, in in its way of perceiving the world. Um, and essentially, you have the same silo uh, approach. Of, Look, we're one service provider. We give you clients and services and everything, and we try to make it as easy as possible for you to to start chatting. Right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that Skype was trying to disrupt the PSTM for voice, and uh, WhatsApp was trying to disrupt SMS for text, basically. So for me, what Skype brought to the table was a departure from like everything else. In before Skype, you built things to look like a phone because that was your what you had as an inspiration. So a big dial pad in the middle, and you chase the things with the button, and it mm -hmm. was numbers and extensions were numbers. And what Skype brought was the same communications pattern, except that it was body list driven. And then it was what driven, sorry? Body list driven. So you okay. had your body list, and then these were people, and it was names. And then it was also, I think, 
it was using presence in the way that it was kind of originally envisioned by the people like uh, the XMPP crowd and the SIP crowd. So it's like, oh, you said your availability and you do this and you do that. And then when, when the likes of WhatsApp came in, well, presence is in the toilet right now because everybody is available at all times, which is... Yeah, uh, that's not really the WhatsApp, right? That was just a matter of... We yeah. actually became available all the time. It's not just that, that your presence state changed. You, you, your personality changed because now we walk around with these connectors uh, to the internet all the time and we are available uh, all the it time. Is, so. It is true. I mean, the one thing, for example, one of the things that WhatsApp didn't have day one, but they added later was the double tick, I believe. So the read receipts. And I think that further cemented these, these like eagerness to, to say, when is my reply coming? I just texted you. I see two ticks. It means your phone has it. Ah, and many people struggle reply. with that. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So it's... I mean, I think those things are innovations in their own right because they do match a little bit of how we communicate today. Uh, but the WhatsApp model came in, uh, in my mind, in a very similar way to how Skype, well, to what Skype already had settled, which is like, we're not going to not use phone numbers. It's going to be more like names or user at domain, um, except it ended up being names. <laughs> um, and for me, that that is the one thing that, that differentiated Skype from the rest, apart from the audio quality and uh, especially the echo canceller, which uh, it's all, it becomes relevant in the WebRTC context uh, a few years afterwards. But I think those those two things, if I remember the early days, it were those two things that were very different from everything else before. It's certainly interesting looking at the lineage of the various communication apps over the years, and it's not quite a long time now. And it's amazing how much is spent reinventing the wheel because so much of the functionality is basically the same. And then you're right, that each one, there's a slight twist. Like I would say that Fiber, for instance, when it came on, was the first one, I think, which actually plundered your contact list in order to identify people based on their E164 numbers rather than um, using a random display name identifier like Skype did. And that was a minor twist, but it was quite revolutionary. And then WhatsApp did the same thing and just totally change that vibe. And you're right, the presence is dead. You know, we basically, we hardly use it on Matrix at all. It's implemented, but nobody, it's not turned on by default because people use read receipts instead. And frankly, it's a better experience because not only do you know whether the person's online, you also know whether they're reading your message or not. Right. So, um, so, so going back to the history aspect of this, um, I'll try to speed up because of this right way. But that's what we're here for. So, um, so certainly Amdocs um, takes an interest in, hey, maybe we can we can build, how would we code that, you know, a, a new generation communication app. Um, and, and you start working on it. I, I remember your first presentations um, from Matrix. You were very much still um, uh, with Amdocs. It was an Amdocs, perceived as an Amdocs project. What happened then? So, well, there was two years where I ran Andox's Unified Communications Division with Amandine, my co-founder. I play with computers. She actually runs the business and keeps everything working. And did Amandine come from the, the, the French acquisition? Yeah, she did. So it's a very rare instance of the French and English actually working together and not killing each other so far. And um, I think you guys secretly like each other way more than you like to admit. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot more overlap than anybody would like to admit. It's almost like we're adjacent countries or something. But it's almost like England is a whole bunch of French people from a thousand years ago. But anyway, um, what happened is uh, we spent the two years before Matrix selling this clone, basically, of WhatsApp or Skype to telcos. And it's really interesting because we've got to learn how to run a business, but also um, deploying it at carrier-grade scale was fun. We finally got to take our soft switch and we and I racked it up in data centers for Tim Brazil, for Singtel, and we're talking like two or three racks of Dell kits, of like PowerEdge servers, very dedicated deployment, scaling up to 70 odd million users in Brazil. And the thing worked. It was horizontally scalable, active, active, clustered on the back end and on the front end. We were using the same stack on the clients with Reciprocate for SIP, using XMPP now for chat and then using HTTP to glue everything else together, like the address book and the um, authentication and all that sort of thing. And it worked, and it was pretty successful. The app in Brazil was called Bla, which apparently is a very cool word in Brazilian Portuguese, which I don't really believe. But either way, it was blah.com, sadly defunct now. But that's where we really created the Matrix team, but not the product. And after two years of doing that, we had a bit of a crisis because it was working, and then we were profitable, the deals were like tens of millions of dollars. It was kind of a good gig. It was probably the most successful telco over the top messaging apps that people had built. But, and we got to, I think, 11% market penetration in Brazil, which again, for a random app like this, which is branded for a telco, is unheard of. WhatsApp was at 98.6% market penetration. So, and, and when you say market penetration in Brazil, you mean what up the, uh, who, who's, what's the 100%? 100% would be everybody with a phone has got the yeah, app installed and is using it. So 98.6% of Brazilians already have WhatsApp installed and we're using it to communicate. Uh, you're talking about now or are you talking about back no, then? No, that was in 2014, Okay, I believe. At least that was the stats. Which we, perhaps it was the percentage of users of Tim Brazil who were on WhatsApp. So they had like right. 70 million subscribers and they had 69.5. And, and so just so I understand the relationship, back then you were offering a solution to a Brazilian telco. They were yep. the ones that were bringing the app out and, and marketing it and all that. Okay. Yeah, precisely. And they did a good job of it. And literally, if you went to the front page of Tim Brazil, the left-hand side was promoting Blah and the right-hand side was promoting zero-rated WhatsApp. And WhatsApp had a bit of an advantage on the global scale. Why do you so, think that was? Network effects, and also, uh, honestly, first move for advantage, global network effects, possibly that it's not branded as a telco and that it's an indie app. And also, they were moving much faster than us because we were certainly somewhat slowed down by the process of going via a telco. I mean, we liked in Brazil, they were great yeah, to work with, yeah. but still, they're a telco. And what things did they move first? And what's that? Well, interestingly, feature-wise, we were way ahead. We had video conferencing, like in 2014, it was up to 10-way MCU-based um, video conferencing on iOS. Did you write the MCU, by the way? Yep, we did. Good uh, job. Not, not me personally, but it was using, again, the same VoIP stack, like a WebRTC mm -hmm. stack that we had for that. Um, uh, yeah, it worked, and that was like four years before Skype did video conferencing on mobile, and I think we were one of the first in the world to do it as a service at all. But it was it just didn't have the network effects that WhatsApp had already. But, but right, but so on which things were they moving faster? Um, uh, I'm trying to think now. I mean, this is what seven years ago. Um, it was probably 
Well, it's more so having shipped the initial app with the feature set that we had, there obviously needed to be constant evolution and iteration on it to keep it up to speed. Whereas a typical telco customer at the time and possibly even now views an app as a thing that you buy. It's like buying a soft it's, yeah, like buying a soft switch or buying a network switch or a base station. You know, you go and if you're a telco, you go and buy your 4G network from Ericsson. And you bought it and it's done. And in 10 years, you buy a 5G network. And they were thinking of it in the same way. Whereas obviously WhatsApp is just constantly doing little right. in incremental improvements, nothing massive, but I don't know, it might have been captioned images, I think came out at about that time, or the ability to bundle images into uh, a set. And obviously we could have done that too, but the, the velocity and the agility when selling to a telco is very different to if you're just doing it as a startup, yep. like WhatsApp okay. were doing it at the time. All right. And so we reckon that we needed to change something massively if we were ever going to displace Facebook and WhatsApp. And that's where Matrix came from. It was basically the experience of 10 years of doing SIP and XMPP and all these other protocols and saying, if none of that had existed, and if you're just sitting on the internet today, what would you design a universal communication protocol to look like? And it would, there would be some really obvious things. You'd just use HTTP because every developer in the world knows how to use curl, knows how to use a web browser. They like Twilio. Why should it be someone like Twilio who has monopoly on easy to use HTTP APIs to do communication? Why don't, why isn't there an open standard for doing that? So, so, so let me unpack a little bit what you're saying, because um, we're starting from um, this telco essentially having a competitor for WhatsApp. And, and and you talked about your frustrations of you know it's it's hard to try and outpace WhatsApp when you have to deal with the other complexity of of, of a telco. Now, um, so so you go well you know let's let's try to do this alone, and uh, and then you think okay let's reimagine everything from the ground up, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is also an interesting question uh, like why why did you feel that everything needed reimagining from from the ground up? Why didn't you just start over from from what you already had and started a cloud service over it. And then you oh. said something else that was interesting. I, I'll probably just add that to the question because your next thing, as you are reimagining things from the ground up and you immediately go to what matters for developers, which is interesting that you would think that. Why what matter, Why? Why do you believe that the, that the developers here are, are those who have to be satisfied? You're obviously thinking about a, an ecosystem. You're not thinking anymore about the siloed approach. And I'm curious what took you there as well. So yeah. I guess it is the same question. Yeah, yeah, I guess this is the fundamental thing. Why build a protocol and an open network rather than yet another silo? And the realization was that even at that point, WhatsApp was getting towards a billion users and they already have massive critical mass. So how are you going to go up against an incumbent like that? The only way to do it is to glue other people together, to go and create a kind of rebellion alliance of loosely, basically to look at the long tail of everybody else. Trying yeah. to I mean, it's one way to do it, right? Because there were other ways to do it. WhatsApp did get outpaced by a bunch of other things. Yeah. Uh, but but it is one way to do it. I agree with you. So you're thinking, okay, our way would be, uh, that would be our differentiator. We're not going to be a silo and, and, and we're going to make it an, an open platform. And I'm curious, was that a, an answer to the question, um, how do we differentiate ourselves? Or was there something deeper in you that, were, that was driving you in that direction? You're, you're, you're right. There is also an ideological or dare I say religious um, aspect to this because um, 
uh, I guess the bet that we have been playing on is that in the long term, you can build a more exciting and more successful and more uh, creative and transformative thing if you do it in an open ecosystem rather than as a silo. As a silo, you can get rich quick. You can capture 100 million users and sell yourself not once but twice to eBay and Microsoft if you're Skype. However, it screws everybody else over. It deprives the rest of the species, whether they are end users or developers, from there being an open environment where they can be creative and built on an open platform. So none of this would be happening if the internet didn't exist as an open platform that is unencumbered, that is neutral, that everybody can build on. And we have the same thing on the web. And the web obviously was intended to be a read-write dynamic platform in the original sort of incarnation from Tim Berners-Lee at CERN. And the problem is that it got too successful too quickly. People realized it was so easy to throw up little bits of HTML in notepad.exe and put it on GeoCities and AngelFire. And suddenly, everybody starts using the web for that. And all of the standards and HTTP and HTML get focused on hypertext documents and um, web apps. And things like the read-write real-time comms bit of it just get forgotten. It kind of gets into the backwater of DAV and more recently, activity pub, and it's all very, very secondary to the original vision that it was going to be this universal layer for exchanging data. So Matrix is very much an ideological attempt to fix that balance before it's too late and finally add the missing open communication there for the open web so that there is just a standard way to store and publish and subscribe to real-time data. And it's important to understand it's not message passing. It's not like XMPP. It's not like SMTP. If anything, it's a lot more like Usenet and NNTP, the idea that you've got a big distributed data store, which happens to be conversation data, which anybody can publish any kind of real-time stuff into and subscribe to. And that might be VoIP signaling. It might be instant messaging. It might be IoT. It might be file transfers. It might be file systems. It's just real-time data. So we see it as very much trying to fix this dystopia that we've got into, where all of the comms that people use day to day are trapped in these silos from Facebook and Google and other big ad companies, and instead re-empower Joe Public to have self-determination and control over their comms. And they can pick which service provider to use. They can run it themselves, or in a peer-to-peer -peer world, they can even just run it themselves inside the phone without even realizing that they're participating in the network. So you're, um, you're, you're I, I, I'd like to understand your opinion on this because you're talking about this as um, um, you, you you perceive the current situation in the world to be a, a, a dystopian one a broken one yeah um, and and you believe that you're enabling a better one is is that fair or is it do you believe that at the end of the day everyone should be, should end up using uh, something matrix based or do you think do you think that there are users who would need what matrix has to offer as, as a communications platform and there's a bunch of people who would be fine with Signal and Telegram and all these things. So we're not trying to get everybody in the world to natively talk. Matrix. Why not? Why not? If, if you said that that's, if you said that the other thing is dystopian, what place is there for it? If you're, why, why are you not trying to get everyone in? We want to, to have the option to use it, and also we want to be able to bridge through to people who are otherwise trapped. So you could natively be using Slack or Discord or Teams or whatever. But the fact that there is an open fabric that you can link the conversation to and participate with people within that wider network is good enough for us. So it's very much not trying to 
just bulldoze away all of these silos and have everybody sitting on top of Matrix. Who do you like, expect will... would be better off in a silo? And who do you expect would be better off with Matrix? So this is an interesting debate, one that I've had publicly with Moxie at um, Signal, because a good example of the benefit of a silo in the case of Signal is that there is one server run by one guy, basically, and he optimizes it for privacy at all possible costs. And if, and a very big if, he is completely incorruptible and trustworthy and has done an impeccable job of managing that server, then it's going to be a safer solution than having 76,000 random sysadmins running their own servers, which is what happened to Matrix. And some of them are not professional sysadmins. And I'm sure many Matrix servers on the public internet today are wide open security disasters and therefore ends up being less secure than if you put all of your eggs in one basket. So it's a trade-off between privacy, hopefully, theoretically, and freedom on the matrix side of things. So that would be one example of the benefit of a silo approach. I still think it's a dystopia, because if I worked at some national nation state security agency, and I wanted to wreak havoc, I know which secure messenger I would go and put all of my effort trying to compromise. Yeah, but don't you think that also kind of in the same way as we gravitated away from presence, um, we have gravitated towards these silo things um like everything the, the one thing that remains federated is email um and even so people that host their email today in 2021 uh you need to be really careful if and and do your job very diligently if you want to receive email from you know gmail and, and the likes so i remember that when gmail launched and they had google talk um you know, that was when when uh, federated messaging flourished in a way because it could talk XMPP. I had my own server and then it was cool. And then WhatsApp and all of these things happen and people are not, I mean, we all complain about having 10 apps in our phone, um, but other than that, everything is available. So you, you did mention that uh, that these two different approaches, like having these interconnected islands has has certain challenges, like federation in and of itself has this, it's a lot harder to ensure security, safety end-to-end, -end. how do you deal with rogue agents? Um, so what is, like, do you think this will be um, where things will end? Or do you envision a day where, well, maybe you end up having element be like signal um, a big central thing hosted by you like do you have numbers on matrix federation uh that show you how healthy the ecosystem is yeah well lots of questions there i mean let me um uh take the sort of fundamental one of whether it's inevitable that things move into silos and i think part of it is uh, you're right it's so much easier to build a silo than a decentralized system and I know firsthand because for 10 years, we built proprietary silos. And then for the last seven years, we've been building precisely the same thing, except now it's open source and it's decentralized and it's standard space. And it's the same, literally the same team of people who have done both. And I would say it's about six to 10 times more effort to make it work in a Byzantine fault tolerant, decentralized, open federated manner than if you're just doing it as a centralized product. So why would you do that? If you, if I walk out to the office and go on a Chiswick High Road and ask some random guy on the street, 
how much is it important to you that your messenger is decentralized and built on an open standard and is end-to-end -end encrypted? The 99.9% .9 chance is that they don't care at all. So why would they even use this rather than WhatsApp or the alternative? And the fact is that it has to be better. It has to be at least as good in terms of features. But if you have put in that effort to go and create a new protocol and a new stack and a new industry and a new ecosystem of people participating within it, then, and it is as good as the centralized alternative, then it's more, should I use an encrypted product or an unencrypted product? They do the same thing. It costs the same to me. I think I'll probably use the encrypted one because it seems better, it's more safe for me. And if we can get to that point, and we're very close to it now, I think that people will go and pick the, the option that provides freedom to pick their own provider, the one that gives end-to-end -end encryption, rather than the one that is provided by the rather sketchy, untrustworthy, greedy ad company. But, but there you mix two things here, well, not mix, but mention two things. One is freedom, and the other one is encryption. Mm -hmm. And so, um, for example, WhatsApp claims to have encryption, and we cannot be sure. We have been told by a guy that it checks some boxes. Uh, and what, you know, the thing is for Joe Random on the street is like, well, they say it's encrypted and there's no proof otherwise. So um, how, like, don't you think it will take a lot of convincing to tell people, hey, this is more better you know, than the other thing? Yeah, um, there's a definite risk that they won't trust um, or that they won't understand the difference. They won't believe that it's um, encrypted. And a lot of it is purely perceptual. I mean, a lot of signals um, time is spent doing PR, frankly. I open up a copy of Wired on any given day and the chances of Moxie being there um, looking cool and telling everybody how important encryption is is pretty high. And you know, here's the savvy, here's the smart guy and he realizes how important it is to tell almost market signal irrespective of the reality as an important thing as uh, encryption is a necessity. But the fact is that humanity has realized in the last four years that there are some pretty dystopian side effects of centralized communication cybers, that you do become literally a propaganda target, that you become victim of some addiction algorithm that is optimized for addiction rather than your own well-being and all the other very obvious things which we now understand are unfortunate side effects of the typical Facebook, Google model. Oh, man, I'll take you up on that one. <laughs> I, I think uh, people are, you know, it's way too easy to bash on on, on the Facebooks and the YouTubes for, for their algorithms. And, and I think people have been taking that facility more than they should because, you know, you and I and Seoul were around in the days where people were on IRC and we remember that the addictive types existed back then as well. I, I, I know people who were just going through the night, having pointless conversations and fights and- Unencrypted pointed, um, pointless conversations. <laughs> unencrypted. Um, so so I, would, I would actually argue that that entire uh, addiction is much more a function of our desire, of, of the fact that now communication is so easy and that we get to cherry pick what communication we have and what information we receive. And I would, I would, I would posit that the algorithms here are probably helping, but, but only, only so much. Um, so I, I totally agree that humans are addictive animals and speaking as a not very reformed IRC addict, nowadays a completely cold carrying matrix addicts. Um, uh, people can 
get themselves addicted to all sorts of things without any help. However, it's a particularly toxic feedback loop you get when the content that you're being produced is deliberately targeted in order to make you more um, shocked and horrified and addicted and um, disgusted and generally it doesn't optimize for quality by any metric whatsoever. It is literally just um, trying to fuel that feedback loop. So I see it as a second order. Do you think that, that an advanced. open platform would optimize for quality of communication somehow? It has to, otherwise it collapses. Now, this was the real, real eye-opener that we had in about 2016 on Matrix, that we got the decentralized comms working relatively well. I thought, huh, no, this works. I can see this replacing SIP. I can see it replacing XMPP, potentially. This is great. Oh, wait, hang on a second. Anybody can join this network. It's end-to-end -end encrypted, and anybody can run a server, and you can use it for anything you like. What could possibly go wrong? And obviously, you end up with an awful lot of people using it for an awful lot of different things. And some of them are fine, and some of them are, depending on your particular viewpoint, potentially really not fine at all. So you have to provide the tools. You have to empower the users to be able to filter out the stuff that they don't want to see. So basically, they need an algorithm to surface the content they are interested in. But you cannot do a centralized, or well, you could do, and you'd be straight back at the centralized approach. But you can't really have a centralized reputation system that goes and feeds these sort of, uh, that goes and does the filtering for you. Instead, you have to embrace the moral relativism here. It's a subjective thing. One guy's terrorist is going to be another guy's freedom fighter. One guy's adult imagery is another guy's illegal porn. It's not up. To, we as Matrix can't in any way um, make those kind of judgment calls, and so we actually have to solve this problem for real and provide the tools for the users to figure out themselves. I, I actually think that that is exactly what creates the addictivity in the echo chambers, letting the users choose for themselves. So, um, and and and. And, and essentially, that's what the algorithms at Facebook and YouTube do as well. They try to encourage you, but ultimately, they don't, they don't force you into anything. If you compare that to you know, how uh, you were getting your information 20 years ago, uh, a broad set of information was just broadcast upon you. And it doesn't matter whether you care about the state of the cows in Brittany, you're going to hear about it. And, um, it, and, and, and the reason you hear about it is because back then, the medium was so expensive that the people who owned, who, who had licenses for the medium, whether it was the broadcasters or the radio stations and all of those, they had no choice but to try desperately hard to optimize for the highest possible audience. So they had to have a little bit of everyone, uh, mm -hmm. a little bit of everything for everyone. Uh, and you end up kind of getting alternative viewpoints in spite of yourself, just because, you know, there's a, there's a show about the cows and you hear about the problems with the cows. And now you know it at the back of your mind that people worry about the cows. Uh, and if you think of it, that's kind of the main value of, of, of Sunday church gatherings as well, right? That you, you get to rub shoulders with your, with your peers, um, the ones that you wouldn't necessarily talk to, but now you hear that, you know, this family's kid is sick and the house for these other people burned and, uh, and, and, and that's because they were, you know, um, this other guy with the tractor burnt it down accidentally. So now you know the tractors can be a problem for some people. So. Um, um, it's, I, I, I actually think that when you, it's not that I'm disagreeing with you, um, because there's a part of what you said that I very much agree with while, um, 
or maybe all of it. You know, it's it's at the end of the day, maybe that's a little bit too lazy for us to rely on public broadcasters to 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 service our information diet because obviously now they're in control and and can uh, spin things in a way which they always have been um, to a limit, right? Because they couldn't afford to do it that much. Um, so that is the key um, balancing act, right? I think it's a really good analogy that if you're an IRC network 20 years ago, you type slash lists and you get like 100,000 channels about every random thing in the world and you have to kind of vaguely pick your way through it. You don't have any good tools to pick your way through it. You might eventually find the correct hash, 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 hash Linux or whatever it is that you were looking mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. Then you suddenly flip forward to the other extreme and everything has been curated for you right. by an algorithm that you have no direct control over at all. You can try or to- Or a broadcast network, right? Or, or precisely. But on broadcasting networks and newspapers, it's really interesting that you do have some level of very cool editorial control because you choose whether to dial into Fox News or to CNN or read The Guardian or read Breitbart or whatever it is. But you don't even have that. That, that actually happened a little bit later. Originally, there were like two broadcast stations. Like I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, uh, you, you had two channels and, and, and it didn't have that much of a choice. And, and I agree that we've been traveling toward the world of today. You know, the minute that you had uh, cable and then two operators became 20 or 200, um, uh, we started traveling toward the world of today, which is where you have, you know, maybe two billion uh, information or possible information sources. But in the newspaper world, you've almost, oh, unless you're in a dictatorship where the government is deliberately suppressing the media sort of range, there's always been at least two contradictory viewpoints from like the 1600s. And before that, it's almost a, who do you go to in the village to get a point of view? Do you talk to that elder or that elder and they're going to tell you the left wing or the right wing kind of viewpoint or whatever? Whereas on a Facebook world, that you just don't have that. There is one algorithm that has been curated for you based on the things which you seem to be interested in and you just can't change the viewpoint. There isn't I would, a, I, you know, I would, I would, Again, I'm very, I'm not convinced at all that the algorithm is what really determines here. But essentially what we're arguing about is, do people get their uh, uh, information bytes because primarily they're served to them by algorithms? Or is it primarily because they seek out, you know, I, I want to see what uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said next or, or, or what Ben Shapiro said next or, uh, and they just go and, and, and seek out the same sources again and again. I'm sure that the algorithms play a role. Mm -hmm. um, it's a second order effect, I agree, on top of the fundamental one of what people were looking for in the first right. place. But uh, I guess we see a responsibility with Matrix to try to let people literally create their own algorithms and also visualize what their algorithm is doing and saying, hey, we're showing you this AOC post because you keep stalking her Twitter feed. Or we're, by the way, we're showing you this Trump thing and 99% of the world might disagree with what this says, but we're showing it to you anyway. By the way, do you want to even visualize your algorithm? And we'd be playing around with WebGL and doing kind of map-based um, visualizations of the communities which exist in the public matrix network, obviously not looking at any private metadata, but just looking at the public room that's out there. And you can literally do cluster analysis to draw big blue continents and big red continents. And you can put a pin in the map and say, right now your viewpoint is here. And by the way, do you want to see what happens to the room list if you go and move it over here? And uh, no, I could, hmm. uh, if I screen share right now, we'd be able to see. Yes, that go for it. Through. Let me just go and quickly pull up a thing called Cerulean, which hopefully is online. It's a clone of Twitter that we built on top of Matrix. I'll just have to find it. And what it has in it is the ability to literally curate your own algorithms as an experiment so that you basically subscribe to reputation feeds, which are rooms and Matrix, i.e. pubs, topics and Matrix. And they have like 
this user, this room, this server, this community is plus 100, minus 100. And it's entirely up to you which ones to subscribe to. You can then blend them together to different percentages. And then you can republish that. And a bit like Pandora playlists allow you to go and subscribe to different music tastes and then kind of recommend. But Matt, is this the way that people are supposed to be using Matrix? Today, I mean, I understand that the protocol uh, you folks built uh, accommodates many different use cases, but the one we sort of start talking about is more like chat, right? So in a, and rooms, and in that kind of environment, you definitely are in charge of your own of the data you receive because you go to a room uh, to hear about built. something. So this other thing is is a little bit of a, of a slight twist on that, right? It's a more of a Twitter-like kind of thing. So, so we is built this the main uh, use case for people today? Or it was very specifically the room list on matrix.org was the first starting point here. Because at the moment, it feels like an IRC channel list. It's got, I think, 60,000 rooms in it. And it is everything from hentai to maths to games to all sorts of different things. And it's just totally unusable. And we wanted to allow people to kind of curate it and say, hi, I'm interested in the Linux stuff. And can you get rid of the NSFW stuff or whatever it might happen to be? But it becomes even more um, so. Let me just show my screen and show my whole screen for expedience. Um, if in a kind of Twittery style microblogging context. So hopefully you can see here um, my Sarah Lee and client. And here I've got an, I've subscribed to hash evil on dendrite.matrix.org. And this was a room. In fact, if I say that I like NSFW, I like this. So it turns out that some of the, uh, some of these things I can adjust the levels on to literally gray them out. So let me go to say this post here, and it's a threaded set of conversations. It happens that it's done via matrix, but it's got the same kind of semantics as a hacker news style thing or a Twitter style thing. And if I go into here and I say, hey, I don't want to see evil stuff. I don't know if I have any evil users here. Ugh, let me find a better test thing quickly. Oh, it's going to take ages because none of it's cached. OK, here's Bob from Twin Peaks, if anybody knows um, Twin Peaks. And Bob is pretty unambiguously evil. And I might go. That's, that's not Bob, actually. It's not, is it? isn't it? It's the, uh, the dancing man or whatever it's called. Right. We also have Bob in here somewhere. Uh, Bob, wow, Bob. Sorry, I get confused by the captions being Bob. Do we actually have Bob in here? No, it's just the um, uh, the dancing man. But either way, um, you get the idea that you can subscribe to different views, and then you can go and say, I dislike evil, therefore I want to fade him out. And stuff which is sent from the Bob user will now be faded out, etc. It's a very, very simple way of doing it. But the logical extension beyond this is to literally have that map, a 2D rather than a 1D um, set of metrics, where you can go and position yourself and this has been live, actually, for about two years now um, on the Matrix network. We use it for um, uh, synchronizing bands and other reputation data. It's used by Mozilla on their server. It's used by us on ours. And you can subscribe to the various reputation lists of people who basically were kicked off our servers because they were jerks. And if you want to go and inherit our rule set or blend it with someone else's rule set, it's basically allowing you to start to curate a, a relative view of the world. And I'm sure there are people who use it to like, kick me out and kick, kick the Matrix team out too. You know, there's there's two aspects to this. One of them excites me and the other one doesn't excite me at all. The one that doesn't excite me is that it means more work because I now have to go and, and, and you know, understand these concepts and, and, and tweak them and 
keep them in mind and maybe readjust them. And um, I don't know how much I, I, I would like to do that. Now, the part that excites me uh, is uh, uh, about it is not so much about what's happening uh, and what has to happen in the work that I have to do. It's, it's about the work that someone doesn't have to do. What I mean by this is, you know, I in the, in the early 2000s, uh, I, I'd say I was, uh, you know, a, a diehard fan of, of Federation, as Peter St. Andrew would say, you know, federate or die. Of course, you know, what else would you do? Uh, and, and then as time evolved, as, as, as we evolved with time and we struggled as a business in, for various reasons, and I started really questioning it. And, and, and I was looking at users and how happy they were using one option versus another. It really wasn't obvious to me that Federation was bringing anything of substantial value. And, and it was obvious to me that it is uh, making things harder in terms of innovation because uh, you have to keep moving parts up at the same level and, and then act accordingly when they're not at the same level. And the, the, the complexity was hugely increased. So I, I guess at one point I was just like, I don't know why, why you would bother. Uh, I don't know what the problem is with having 10 apps on your phone and just using 10 different networks. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that there was a problem. And interestingly enough, what brought Federation in uh, as, as a necessary thing was, um, you know, it's kind of what you were saying about uh, compromising Moxie in, in Signal. Um, interestingly, though, it, it's not the secret services that compromise that single party. You know, it's not the NSA, it's not the CIA. What I think we've seen way more often and way more obviously is we, the mob, compromising them. So if you look at if you look at Facebook and and Twitter, now you're um, essentially they are Moxie in their own silos. They run the, uh, the, the which makes them look. If I have a problem with what's going on that platform. I know who I have to go and shout at. And, the, and, and these people are going to cave in and if, if the mob is big enough. So you end up having um, Twitter and, and Facebook um, essentially having to pick sides in, in ideological debates, um, philosophical debates, really, um, where they really shouldn't have to pick sides. And, and once they pick, they end up curating views that are... You, you know, morally not outrageous, but simply incompatible with uh, one way of viewing the world. Um, and and it's inevitable. I think that, the, as you said, as long as you have that single party to compromise, sooner or later, they're going to have to pick a side. Uh, and what excites me about what you're showing is that when we say that the network provider is no longer the person responsible for these things, when they wash they, their hands out of it, well, uh, well, sorry, when we say that you are responsible for that, we're saying that the network provider isn't. And so now they're free from that. And, 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 and now you can, you know, I find the power case specifically outrageous there. Like that, that, that you know, they were just a, uh, an information network that were trying to appeal to a certain crowd, but they were a technological application. And, and overnight, they find themselves completely shot to death. We know we, we just took taking them down from... Um, from two app stores, um, and and which which is outrageous, but at least I can understand. And then Amazon piles in, which felt almost like a, uh, it's like oh, we want to be part of the cool kids too. We want to show everyone. No one knew that Power was using Amazon, <laughs> but 
we're going to tell everyone that that we're also cool because we can also ban them. Look, and and it was it was so outrageous uh, that, that that these things were happening. You know, fe tar and feathering essentially. Um, so so that's what excites me about uh, uh, about the idea of federation, about the idea of leaving those responsibilities to people. I think they would hate it, but at least it wouldn't be a single party responsible for it anymore. I mean, and this takes me to um, to 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 my next line of questioning uh and which was going to be uh how much more time do you have do you have another 15 minutes or so or uh, i've got a bit of a stop on the hour i can go a few minutes oh. over sorry all right all right so uh you guys just went over and, and, and had a very successful funding round congratulations i'm really happy for you all i remember uh, i'm actually very admirative you had a very hard a very hard beginning after amdocs um money was scarce uh, you, you, and you persevered. You tried Patreon. You tried you tried contracts. You tried a bunch of different things, and um, you finally found um, some peace and calm, and, and you know the ability to project yourself in the future. Um, and and is it? Am I wrong to attribute that to the fact that you find you, you sort of found a good match um, with with a certain type of audience? that means business that has money uh and and that can pay for you know for various services that you're offering um and and and, and, and it's now easier to understand the you know why 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 element will be a successful business enterprise would you would you agree that that's kind of a big part of the reason oh yeah absolutely i mean if we hadn't found people wanting to use matrix and frankly to get that network effect starting to expand exponentially then it would have been an interesting exercise that fizzled out like seven or probably more like four or five years ago when we span out of amdox in 2017 to go and set up what is now element and you're right it was a very wobbly time we had no funding at all when we left amdox and we pulled our severance money together and it said that we would work together for three months on matrix to see if we could make a go of it and uh, luckily were able to prove that it had legs enough to raise investment and then since then it's been pretty good and the way in which we proved that there was appetite for this was first from public sector deployments the entirety of the french states coming on board why do you think they were interested in you because they want to control their own communications. They don't want it to be sitting unencrypted in America. If you are a country and you want to communicate, then you want to have it under your own roof. And you certainly don't want it unencrypted, given that it could be used for really sensitive things. And that has been our initial niche, but it's then expanded um, all over the shop, obviously in the open source and the kind of nerdy domain that's been very popular, but also big private sector companies, particularly those who interface with the public sector, find themselves wanting to be on the same communications network that the public sector guys are on. So you literally get a network halo effect, a bit like the early days of email and the internet, that sure, you could be on CompuServe or SprintNet or AT&Tnet, or you can use this slightly hippie ARPANET SMTP thing that all the universities use and the, the DOD uses. And is that's the one that wins in the end. And we're literally seeing that pattern working out at the same time. By the way, going it's back quickly- something extra, right? I mean, there's 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 other similar projects that um, do the self-hosted things that you can um, deploy with you know reasonable encryption. I mean, do you think that encryption is your number one um, reason why uh, Matrix is more appealing to to governments? No, it's um, very much the decentralization as well as the encryption. It's the fact that you can self-host. Obviously, you could run a Matamos, you could run a Rocket Chat or a Wire or whatever. But um, it would not federate. 
basically. I mean, I think Rocket Chat has got basic private federation going on these days, but it's not like you're part of a much larger network and it doesn't have the partition resilience that you get in Matrix, that even if there is a net split briefly, it goes and merges up seamlessly afterwards. And that's the real kicker that in France, we've got 65 deployments and it's roughly three per ministry and you've got the public facing one and then you've got various sort of air gaps internal ones and they all can talk to one another. So it gives the IT departments complete self-sovereignty as to whether they run it on-premise in the private cloud, public cloud, wherever, um, to run it on Windows or run it on Linux, it doesn't matter because in the end it can all go and participate in that wider network. When you have other countries also coming on board, like in Germany, there's the entire health service now, Gematic, mandating matrix as the way for the health industry to intercommunicate, or the Bundeswehr, the armed forces, again, using it throughout the whole thing as the one way to communicate then it's it's a no-brainer that the French Minister des Armées will want to go and talk to the Bundeswehr and have the same protocol for intercommunicating. Then we provide bridges to XMPB for talking through um, other coalition comms and NATO stuff where there's lots of XMPP. And I think the only alternative really would be an XMPP-based approach, but for whatever reason, there doesn't seem to be a competitor to Slack or Teams or Discord, which is built on XMPP. And if there was, then perhaps you wouldn't have gone off and written one on top of Matrix. Um, you, you wanted to go back to something? I wanted to go back to the comment about uh, moral relativism in big tech and the fact that Federation does give a way out for the rather sticky um, ethical decisions that the Amazons and the Googles and people have to make. And it's worth noting that Sarah Lynn has actually done in kind of partnership with Twitter, who have a very um, future-looking view on this, and the reason it's called Cerulean is that Cerulean is a shade of blue, and this was done as part of the Blue Sky Decentralization Project and that Twitter have been um, experimenting with, and that's why it is a clone of Twitter but built on top of Matrix. So I would definitely agree that an advantage here is that it uh, kind of uh, avoids any of these slightly concerning, very um, autocratic decisions. And instead, I would call them very concerning, actually. Um, that, that's probably one of the things that concern me the most, M definitely more than even for the average user. I think they're definitely more concerning than, than the risk of NSA, um, yep. for example. Yep. And so we're just trying to provide tools to let people basically make up their own minds, right. much as they do in the real world. There's nobody in the real world telling you, forcing you to read The Guardian rather than The Sun or whatever. And Likewise, this is giving the same kind of flexibility for the users to decide which team they want to go on and um, yeah. hope that the, the good ones for your definition of good win. Um, so, um, Matt, this was uh, Matthew. Uh, this was awesome. And uh, I, I actually think that I, we could spend another hour and, and we're going to try and set that up to see if, if you have availability Easy. talking about um, I'm very interested in diving into the government use case and and you know what exactly works for them what doesn't um mm. would so, so let's i hope it's all right with you that we try and schedule another oh, no, one of those uh, oh, sessions yeah, I, I love the idea that rather than having like just hey we should have a sync up we can hey why don't we double it up and use it as a podcast too exactly so uh so let's try and do that uh and um We'll pause here for the time being. It was really tons of fun uh, hearing your perspective on all these on all these things, and I'm very very happy that we get to start this with you. Um, thank you for agreeing to spend time with us. And um, so, did you want to add anything? Did you want to add anything? And at closing, 
I'm very much looking forward to another session where we dive into some other topics as well. We, uh, we, I'll admit, we did have uh, uh, a little bit of planning. We, we put some topics in a list, and I think we barely scratched the surface. But that's yeah, fine. It's a good, me. That's a good sign. Exactly. Yeah, it's 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 a great sign. And and for example, you, you did briefly touch on on the peer-to-peer -peer aspect. I think that that's another really interesting topic where we can where we could dive into uh, because it has evolved a lot uh, across time. And, and, yeah, and you folks have some interesting stuff. We had, uh, we had a break for a couple of months ago with a whole new routing algorithm um, called Snack, which I would love to talk about. But yeah, thank you for the opportunity to um, chat and to be part of the first um, uh, broadcast. I'm, I'm honored and it'll be really fun to follow it up at some point in the future. Sounds good. Enjoy Thanks your weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. See everyone.